This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Trevor Ngonwe and Luke Seinwell about their book, which they co-edited with Emmanuel Ness, entitled Urban Revolt, State Power and the Rise of People's Movements in the Global South. Trevor Ngonwe is a social scholar activist who is active in the Socialist Group and the United Front. These are organizations that seek a pro-working class, pro-poor future for South Africa and the world. Luke Seinwell is a senior researcher with South African Research Chair in Social Change at the University of Johannesburg. He has published widely on social movements and popular protest. In the book, Urban Revolt, through detailed case studies, it unravels the potential and limitations of urban social movements on an international level. The urban poor and working class now make up the majority of the world's population. Much of the population growth results from the displacement of rural people to megacities. The proliferation of informal sediments and slums, particularly in the global south, have created conditions ripe for social upheaval as people seek to improve their living conditions and win basic human rights. Drawing from case studies in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, the chapters in this book map and analyze the ways in which the majority of the world exists and struggles in the contemporary urban context. Without further ado, Trevor Ngonwe and Luke Seinwell, welcome to Book Speaks and Beyond. Thank you. So I just want to let you guys know this book is fascinating. It touches on a lot of stuff that I really rarely even thought about. But what I want to get from you guys is what gave you the courage to take on this task of writing this information for us? Um, well, we saw what was happening in South Africa, uh, especially the civic organizations that had emerged since the late 1990s uh, as a response to the neoliberal policies of the African National Congress. And some of these uh, civic organizations had been sustained over a very long period of time, uh, including in uh, informal settlements, uh, some of which have 20,000 or more people living in them. Uh, people trying to access basic services like water, electricity, and uh, housing. And these were proliferating up until today all around the country. And basically, uh, we spoke to, uh, Trevor and I spoke to Emmanuel Ness, and we thought we should use South Africa as a pivot uh, in order to try to understand uh, similar processes that were unfolding uh, elsewhere in the world, particularly in the global south. Uh, so we just moved forward, you know, by uh, trying to identify some of the young scholar activists uh, in other places like uh, India, uh, Brazil, Nigeria, uh, and then we worked with them. Uh, we just simply really just worked with them uh, to develop the book and to put the chapters together. Yeah, I mean, uh, you guys, it, this is fascinating in a sense because 
the book is broken down into three parts, you know, uh, showing examples of people's resistance and social upheaval in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Um, and I'm going to start with the part, a section from the, the African part of the book. So um, why did you guys say that South Africa could be the place where it's the most politically active in regards to the people's social movements? Uh, well, one reason is because South Africa is often called uh, the protest capital of the world, meaning that it has the the most protests per capita. Uh, and then it's also, uh, in terms of the Gini coefficient that measures wealth inequality, one of the most, if not the most, uh, unequal countries in the world. And we also have, and a lot of those protests are coming from communities, but they're also uh, strikes being equated with uh, protests. But what we have is a, a triple-pronged resistance movement. Um, the community-based movements, which are leading protests on the streets in poor communities to access basic services uh, on a regular basis because of the failure of the African National Congress to deliver basic services to people, uh, which they expected to happen after 1994. But there were shortcomings in that. That's why we have a growing inequality and people don't always have access to basic services. So they go out on the streets and protest. Then we also have a major workers' movement uh, developing, especially since 16 August 2012 in Maracana, when 34 mine workers were gunned down by the police under the auspices of the African National Congress. Mm. So it was now the liberation movement sort of officially turning on the people who were striking and demanding a living wage. And we had emerged out of that um, a new independent trade union movement, which we could talk about in quite some detail. But then soon after that, in 2015, uh, we witnessed a nationwide student movement where all the universities were shut down uh, as students continue until this day to demand free decolonized education. So one of the reasons you know, why we're calling it that is because the, the masses are on the move and they're looking for alternatives and the, the political structures are creating the conditions uh, for some kind of alternative to the capitalist system uh, to actually uh, begin to make its way. Mm. Yeah, because you guys talk about and that a lot of uh, the people of South Africa have lost faith in the African National Congress. If you can elaborate on that. Um, well, as, as you uh, probably recall, uh, the African National Congress played, among many other players, a leading role in liberating black people from apartheid. Uh, but there were quite a number of concessions in the negotiations uh, that were made. And uh, in, in 1994, when the transition happened, uh, people could begin, well, at first there was a honeymoon period. Uh, where everyone was obviously uh, rejoicing because the the apartheid uh, white minority rule uh, government was now uh, overthrown, and we had the the black president Nelson Mandela leading the way. But what happened beneath the scenes is that neoliberal market-oriented policies 
that put prophets before people were beginning to be adopted, especially from 1996 under this growth employment and redistribution uh, program. Uh, so what happened is that you saw a shift away from state-driven approaches towards profit-driven approaches. And then you saw people uh, entering into the streets, especially from the late 1990s, where you had um, service cutoffs like water and electricity. People couldn't afford to pay uh, for water and electricity. So then they started coming into the streets. Um, at that time, uh, in the early 2000s, relatively small groups of people were looking for alternatives. Uh, radical groups were looking for alternatives uh, to the ANC. Um, and growing, what, what has happened increasingly, there's been new political formations such as the Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, led by uh, Julius Malema, uh, which is a left, a slightly left uh, alternative, which has the idea of being anti-capitalist. It's somewhat of an alternative to the ANC. But then you also have, like, the trade union movements, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa broke with the ANC, citing the Marikana massacre, as well as the adoption of neoliberal policies that exclude the vast majority of workers from obtaining, you know, a decent life and a decent living wage. So you're seeing on the left emerge uh, different groups. Um, you know, the, the largest trade union in the country is this NUMSA, National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa. It is broken with the ANC. And you have the EFF, which comes out of, which is basically a splinter uh, from the ANC. In the aftermath of Americana, it also broke away uh, from the ANC. And all this time, uh, since the late 1990s and early 2000s, you had people who were looking for an alternative to capitalism who had accepted that the ANC, the African National Congress, was taking the road of capitalism and then they were trying to build local community-based uh, structures that could challenge capital. So now while these political formations are moving away from the ANC, these other organizations are beginning also to find potential political homes that they can become stronger in. Mm -hmm. and, and thank you for laying that out. And now that a lot of the workers are part of these other unions, in, in, a, in a sense, you also talked about the failure of uh, of union leaders when it comes to the politics of class collaboration. Can you explain what you're talking about? Although they broke from the NC and they are doing more of the traditional unions, there's conflict within that area uh, when it's trying to get people to pull together. Can you elaborate? Yeah, so basically... Remember that South Africa had a, a nationalist <laughs> freedom mm -hmm. struggle against apartheid. So there was unity, you know, among the forces against apartheid. So you had uh, the National Liberation Movement, and the trade unions were part of the National Liberation Movement. Mm -hmm. I remember clearly in the 1980s, when uh, there was uh, a state of emergency, a lot of state repression, you know, Kosachu, the Congress of Southern Trade Union, you know, kept the struggle fire burning. And then when we got our independence, there was a formal alliance between the ruling party of Nelson Mandela, the ANC, 
and also the Sarokan Communist Party, which was also a leading force in the struggle against apartheid, and also Kosatu. So this tripartite alliance, ANC, FACP, and Kosatu, can be seen as, uh, from a Gramscian point of view, as a historic block, you know, which was kind of, uh, uh, you know, ruling the class, the, the country politically, and also leading the working class. But over time, as Luke has pointed out, the workers and the poor started to feel that the government of the ANC was not serving them. Mm-hmm. But then the unions were tied into this uh, alliance with the ruling party. And uh, slowly but surely, the unions became routinist, they became pliable, they started to cooperate more with the bosses and with the state rather than uh, answering and fighting on behalf of the workers. Mm-hmm. So this caused tremendous frustration among workers because basically the cheap labor system of apartheid continued despite the fact that we had not our liberation. Mm-hmm. So one of the things which happened, which we call a turning point, is the Maricana massacre mm-hmm. when uh, workers, uh, miners, who were members of the National Union of Mine Workers, broke out and had their own strike, what you call a wildcat strike, because they said that their union was not willing to fight for them. So when they did that, the government of the ANC sent police and 34 miners were shot dead. Mm-hmm. So the politics of class collaboration, the politics of the union bureaucracy was uh, tragically uh, challenged. And this is the era we are now living in. Mm-hmm. We call it the spirit of Marigana because we think that those workers, those 34 workers who died, their spirit is still working in South Africa and inspiring a lot of the strategy that is going on. Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because, you know, now that they lost faith in the traditional unions, I think you guys started talking about something called people committees or street committees. And um, you guys started talking about strategic implications um, uh, of the workers' movement, about where should the organizing and the processes take bla- place, either at the work environment or in the worker communities. Can you can you explain, knowing that there's not a traditional union, that how these people have to get together, and what are some of the tactics to keep this organization, uh, uh, to keep the people's movements alive without traditional unions? What happens is that in a country like South Africa, where there's a high rate of unemployment, when uh, employed workers, when organized labor does not link up with community struggles, then you find that the working class views more broadly as all those who don't own capital or own any factory, then the working class is divided. So it is imperative that, you know, organized labor, employed workers, you know, join their struggle with the unemployed, with community struggle. And in South Africa, there's a lot of struggle in the community. This is what uh, has led to South Africa being called the capital uh, of uh, protest. Mm-hmm. Because communities are fighting for water, for electricity, 
and so forth. But since uh, they are communities, they don't have the economic leverage like employed workers mm-hmm. to shape the system. So you find a lot of these community struggles, most of the time they are fragmented, they don't unite, and they need, uh, you know, the power of employed workers. So it is our view that the way forward in the struggle in South Africa, indeed in the world, is for community and labor struggles and also youth struggles, student struggles, to come together to, to face the common enemy. So, what can we learn, and uh, what can future strikers learn from the Americana Massacre? Well, I think uh, they can learn one of one or two things at least. One is they they can learn about the power of courage, determination, and unity, uh, because as that strike grew, uh, more and more workers became involved, and even after. The um, even after the 34 mine workers were killed, uh, the workers actually united again and became an even more powerful uh, force, and eventually actually uh, changing the political landscape uh, of the entire country. So, yeah, I think the, the power of unity and of worker militancy, I think those are the lessons that uh, Americana can teach us. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. No agreement today, no agreement tomorrow. No agreement today, no agreement tomorrow. No agreement today, no agreement tomorrow. My brother hungry, make I not talk. I not go giri, make my brother homeless, make I not talk. My grandpapa talk, your grandpapa talk, my papa talk, your papa talk, my mama talk. I'm not going to kill Make my brother hungry. Make her not talk. I'm not going to kill Make my brother homeless. Make her not talk. No agreement today. No agreement tomorrow. Something that came to mind as I was reading the book was people in poor areas, in the rural areas, are being displaced to uh, for the capitalists to construct these special economic zones where they can create an economy that's kind of out of the uh, um, not within the legal parameters of the country, but, you know, to create so-called economics in a way that doesn't kind of benefit the people that live there. So those people have to move, 
and they move into the urban areas, now we're seeing revitalization, so-called revitalization of these urban areas, and then the people are being displaced there. So with all this going on globally, what type of ideology should the urban poor embrace that will help them come cohesively to move forward in the struggle against the uh, global capitalist regime? The first thing is uh, the urban poor, the working class, they have to stop uh, looking at themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. Although they are victims of the oppressors, of the exploiters, they have to turn from being victims into fighters. And if they, they are to, to become fighters, they have to learn to rely on their own strength, on their own organization, on their own fellow men and women, their own neighborhood, their own organization, local organization, to actually fight back uh, for what, uh, you know, for a better life, so to speak. So one of the important things about agency, the fact that the, the belief that it's through your own action that you can make a better life for yourself, is the idea of ordinary people of the working class as makers of history. Everything tells us that, you know, if the great men and women, if the rich, if the powerful, if government, which determine the course of history. But the policies of the elite are against the interests of the poor, against the interests of the peasants, against the interests of the working class. So, you know, the sub-Alton classes have to believe in their own strength, develop their own ideologies, most importantly, come up with alternative visions of the kind of society they want to live in. This is most important. An anti-capitalist and a visionary approach to struggle. So how has, you know, writing this book changed you guys in any way? a good question. I haven't really uh, thought about it like that before, Todd, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'll just say, you know, that that one of the things that we had hoped uh, to get out of this book, um, and this is one of the ways that we framed it, you know, was not only to describe and analyze, but to try to put some kind of foundation of a network of uh, scholar activists that could work together uh, in order to challenge uh, the capitalist system, scholar activists and the uh, community-based local organizations that Trevor is talk- talking about, mm-hmm. because obviously the the national, uh, you know, the local struggles which are happening in one country affects and relates to what's happening in another place. So we can't view these as isolated struggles, but we need a kind of internationalism that brings together. Uh, separate struggles, not only within the countries, but across the borders, mm-hmm. and eventually to do away with borders. Trevor, how has it changed you? Has it changed you in any way? Yeah, certainly being exposed to written material about, you know, other struggles in, in other parts of the world, especially in the global south, has enriched my understanding, and in fact has given me hope, because I find so many commonalities in the problems and solutions proposed from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And as Luke has said, one of our approaches was to get what we call scholar activists, that is people who are 
not only writing about struggle, but involved in struggle to actually be contributors to this book. Mm-hmm. And indeed, we found that almost all the chapters, in fact, all the chapters have been written by scholar activists. So it's an inspiration for me that what we're doing here with Luke and other comrades like us is, uh, is correct. We should continue trying to make sense, theorizing, doing research, but we should also continue uh, with our work as activists on the ground, joining struggles, pushing. And in fact, one great insight which uh, I came to realize is that, in fact, it's more accurate to get information from people who are involved in struggle mm-hmm. rather than, you know, rely on the observations by, uh, you know, people who stand away from struggle, you know, who actually uh, write from above or from far from the struggle. Mm-hmm. So I think that going forward, uh, I will uh, continue with the struggle and I trust versions of what is going on, you know, by those who are actually involved and are committed to creating a better world, a better society. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, there was a very serious situation brewing. There was a farmer and a farmyard filled with animals, and this is the story of their times. Old man Sammy had a farm, walked the land with the rifle, most of the time shit was calm, his whole life was maintained off the everyday labor from the mules in the field to the cattle in the stable, this is how he kept food on his table, you would have thought he was disabled from the way he be relaxing, acting like Mr. Magnificent. But the animals was thinking something different. The sentiment was tension in the barnyard. Throughout the years, they hadn't been through mad drama with the farmer word is barn guard. And they all came to one conclusion. They argued it was no way that they'd ever be free if it was up to humans. Therefore, the only course left was revolution, which was understandable. And since the pigs promised to lead it in the interest of all the animals, they planned a full attack under the leadership of Hannibal, the fattest pig in the pack. The next morning on the farm, everything was calm. Just before dawn, but before long, the sun got Got so hot it make the farm seem electric. Now check it. This is when that shit got hectic. Directed by Hannibal, the animals attack. Old Sam was in a state of shock. He fell up on his back and dropped his rifle. Reaching in vain. Each and every creature from the field at his throat screaming, kill, feel the pain. This is the animal, the man. This is the animal, the you. This is the animal, the man. Coming true. You guys brought up some great points that this book is written by various scholar activists who were part of these movements and who not only were part of the movements, but they have a good background in regards to uh, social movements uh, of of, of the sort. Um, And that's important that more of them do get together to help um, educate um, maybe people who are not in the global south. And and that's that's the question I really want to get across is how about people who aren't part of the global south who are actually benefiting from what's going on in the global south but still think it's unfair and want to help some way? What do you say to people who are like that? Although this book is about uh, the global south, uh, you know, these three regions in the global south, we do think that the problems of the north 
are also equally significant. Mm-hmm. And you have within the north, you have ghettos and you have slums, you have homeless people, you have Ferguson's, you know, where mm-hmm. there's a uh, harsh uh, police brutality. So still we need, and, 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 you know, we have the capitalist system affecting the entire world. Mm-hmm. So still we need uh, solidarity actions uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, when we do have something in the global south, whether it's in Johannesburg or Jakarta, we need the people from New York City uh, to join us uh, in action on the streets as well. Right, right. And and as I was reading it, I was thinking, uh, for example, when we're talking about Americana and how, you know, the people lost faith not only in the the, the government, they lost faith in the traditional unions. But instead, they found innovative ways to work as a people. And I and I think the global north, the people who are struggling economically and so forth, I think they can take some good lessons from that. You don't always have to <laughs> – the state needs you. So it's, it, it makes sense for the people to get together. And I, um, I truly believe they can a lot of, learn a lot of lessons from what the people are doing in the global south to try to – uh, break the shackles of the the um, avaricious global capitalists. Lastly, what do you mainly want the readers to really take away from this book? Uh, I think that uh, I'd like people, whether in the north or in the south, to take the idea that change comes from below. Mm-hmm. Change comes from struggling. Mm-hmm. Protests, strikes, rebellion are the engine of change in the 21st century, in the new millennium. Everything was seen uh, in history has come about because those who are downtrodden, those who are oppressed, those who are exploited, brought back from the days of slavery, serfdom. I think people have been fighting for a better life. All the benefits, all the rights that we have, they're never given to the people by the elite on a plate. We have had to fight for everything. And that struggle must continue. And as Luke was saying, it is not just a struggle for Africa, for Latin America, or for Asia. It is a struggle also for Europe, for America, for Canada, for all, for China, for all the parts of the world. And we believe in international solidarity. We think everywhere in the world there are human beings. They are working people, they are oppressed people, and we think that this book is a small contribution to the spirit of international solidarity, the spirit of Aluta Continua. The struggle must continue. Mm-hmm. And Luke, what do you want people to mainly take away? Uh, well, Trevor uh, put it put it very well there, but I'll, I'll just add, building uh, any form of loose or strong organization of people uh, and sustaining it uh, through slow, hard work uh, over a long period of time uh, eventually does bring change. So when people read the book, uh, hopefully they will realize that. And if they haven't joined in the struggle yet, uh, we hope that they will soon. Well, Trevor Ngonwe and Luke Seinwell, thank you so much for being on Book Speeds and Beyond. Thank you so much for having us, Taj. It was a pleasure. Thank you, George. Thank you. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. 
or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, and also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. <laughs>